Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of Mental Health Much, the podcast that talks about everything queer and mental health. I'm your host, and this is going to be the first of three, hopefully four episodes where I get to not only have a special guest, but a guest that is one of my mentors. So one of the person that influenced the most who I am today, both as a professional, but also personally. And today I'm meeting with Almuth. Hi, Almuth. Hi. Hi, Vincent. How are you? I'm really good. I am really excited to have you on this podcast today. Amut, we met when I was doing a practicum at Women's College Hospital. I was your student for student placement in the trauma therapy program. And um, I was your last student because you retired after, which is going to be relevant when we start talking about uh, today's topic of aging and retirement. But I didn't know at the time when you first interviewed me how important you would be in my life, both personally and professionally. I don't think I had realized that this connection that we had, uh, drinking tea in your office for my interview, that it would still to this day like carry me. It's been four years now, I think, or, or maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So you taught me so many things, uh, including like trauma therapy, I think more importantly, like what relational therapy is. You're such an expert in that, and it helped me so much in my career. And um, one of the key thing also you taught me is each time you're lost with a client, Vincent, you said those words, remember that at the basis of your job, it's to be curious and interested. And that's what we do as therapists. And this is helping me <laughs> like on a weekly basis still to this day. And another thing that really stroke out to me that you taught me is that the only way out of pain is through it. So these are like the four kind of like nuggets of information that I very cherish from our relationships. That's so wonderful to hear, Vincent, because I wouldn't know. Just like there's always that parallel process, right? Like often with our clients don't really know what it is that sinks in. Mm -hmm. What exactly did I say or do or what facial expression just kind of clicked with them. And we hear that sometimes afterwards. And if you have a chance to get the feedback, you'll sometimes be surprised. So I didn't know that was what stuck with you. And yet I'm thinking, oh, I was quite wise at that time. <laughs> <laughs> you are still quite wise, yeah. But yeah, these things are really like sticking to me. Like the last one, like the only way out of pain is through it is something you taught me and it's so useful in my practice and in my personal life, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the nature of our profession, isn't it? That it is very personal in a lot of ways. We can't get away from, we are also traveling on the same path of self-discovery, of meeting challenges as our clients are. We may not experience the same thing they are, And yet we know about pain, emotional pain. We know about having to deal with stress and relationships. We know all that. And we have to challenge ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it, that it is deeply personal. It is deeply interpersonal. And it's something that is something that accompanies you through life. And I love that about the profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Like one thing about relational therapy that you taught me is also, I think this desire for everyone to love you or to like you is something that a lot of humans have. And as a therapist, obviously, I wanted all of my clients to love me and to like me. And then you made me realize, well, if there is a conflict, use it. Because whatever's happening in a therapeutic room, you can use as a therapeutic tool. And that really helped me <laughs> realize that I'm not the focus of therapy. The client is the focus of therapy. And when there's a conflict, we can use it. And sometimes they're not big conflict, but it's not about me. It's about our relationship and it's about them. Yeah. That was really useful. Right. And that's the, also how our relationship with our client often brings forth their dilemmas, their conflicts, their core conflicts in their lives that then get transferred to this relationship so that, no, it isn't usually about you. 
Sometimes it is. If we've done something wrong, said something wrong, being offensive, being inattentive, well, we need to own it. And the modeling of, oh, I really missed that, or I didn't pay enough attention, or I didn't notice that. Thanks for pointing it out. And doing that repair, it's such a huge thing that you can do because you're modeling what they need and what they needed quite often. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the parallel also in supervising. Just from your introduction, you were also the first male student I had in the program that's mostly geared to women, that pretty much I have to own that, that with my kind of pushing and pushing and saying we have to also have men here, that kind of got opened up more. And so that was a wonderful experience. There's always a reciprocal process. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of when you talk about mentors, that growth that happens in a mentorship relationship goes both ways because I too learned. Absolutely. And that's why I'm calling this like mentorship. I had amazing professors and colleagues and everything, but you and then the other three people that I would like to have on my podcast, like Rick Mireille and Bastien, who have not managed to reach out to yet, you were more than that. You were like part of my growing. And I think it was that exchange. I'm really happy to be able to use my podcast to sort of like take this picture in time of our relationship. And I really cherish that and um, cherish everything that you brought into my life. And I, I'm so happy that I get this channel to showcase it. Super. (laughs) And introduce you to the world. So tell us more. Who are you? Let us know a little bit more about who you are. Oh, God, there are so many aspects. As you know, (laughs) I talk about parts, parts of us. We all have parts. So who am I? First of all, I'm an older woman. I am still a very passionate therapist, passionate supervisor, uh, mentor. Maybe that's a better word because supervisor has this hierarchical connotation that I don't like. Yeah, I'm passionate about what I do. I'm also part of my hats is that I'm a mother of two kids who are now adults. And I am a partner to my common-law husband and a friend. My background is from Germany, so I have a psychology degree from Germany. And part of my experiences that I actually really value that have given me a whole lot of information about also what others go through is as an immigrant to Canada Mm -hmm. and um, having to reestablish myself with a foreign degree, even though Germany is pretty much the cradle of psychology and psychotherapy. Canadian authorities don't think so. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast about that. That was a big struggle. And what I value is that in that struggle to establish myself here, I had a whole lot of experiences working in the women's shelter, running women's groups for self-esteem, and then starting a private practice and eventually landing at Women's College Hospital, which like those 20 years were very, very valuable to me. And so much more delving into trauma therapy, which linked with my experiences working with abused women and then later also abused men. Because you were part of the team that sort of like set the trauma therapy program at Women's College Hospital. Well, from the day treatment program, which called RAP, Women Recovering from Abuse Program, some monies came available and they decided to add on the trauma therapy program. And at that point, I came on the scene. So I've been co-creating that program, co-developing that program with an absolutely amazing team of colleagues that are continuing that legacy of this collaborative team effort. And it's just wonderful to see that what we set in motion, that it's continuing, even though I've retired from it. And it grown a lot. Like when I was there, it was several professionals going from nurses to psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists. There were learners. I think there were like five or six of us who were learners at the same time. Art therapy, groups, individual. It was such a big program. I'm very impressed that you were there at the beginning of all of it, and it's helping so many people. 
It is a very unique program. I can't say enough about it. And I just kind of do want to put a bit of a plug in because just recently, so the team published another book. And again, it was a collaborative effort. And it's just so amazing. So yes, it's a really lovely, rewarding legacy to leave behind. And I think that kind of goes with the topic of how do I feel as an aging person, as somebody who's kind of, you know, just past the 70s threshold and looking back. And I had to say like that, going to that book launch on Saturday, again, it reminded me, I thought, yes, together with others, I've left behind a legacy that is continuing, that's being picked up by younger colleagues with the same set of values. There may be some processes that have changed. There's a lot. Online therapy was unthinkable when we worked there. Mm-hmm. Now it's the norm. All of that is, it's exciting. And yet they kept those values. They've kept those basic processes, the basic philosophy, that commitment to trauma-informed care. It's amazing. And it's really rewarding to see it's continuing. I don't have to be any longer an active part of it, but it's there. Absolutely. So that's part of who I am. And there's probably a lot more to it, you know? (laughs) So this is a special mentor episode, and I wanted to ask you, did you have a mentor, Amleth? And if you did, what is maybe one thing that you've learned that you will always remember from that person? Well, I have to say I've had a lot of mentors. And as I said to you before, actually, I have to credit my parents. So both my parents were doctors. My mother was a psychoanalyst. And One thing I think that I've really picked up from her is that whatever happens in the therapy context has meaning. It tells you something about the client that you're with. That's definitely something I've learned. And somehow, even though she was a Freudian, that kind of relational perspective, I think, was inherent in there, even if she didn't see it that way. Mm -hmm. Also, later years, we consulted with each other. Mostly I consulted with her, but sometimes she'd read articles in English and ask me, you know, that doesn't make sense to me or I don't understand this. And I remember one time where she read this long article and she says, I just can't make sense of it. Can you translate it for me? I read it and I said, don't bother. (laughs) It's all bullshit. It's a lot of talk and he's not really getting to the points why you're not getting it. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for her. So it was mutual. And yeah, she's definitely one of my mentors. And then, of course, over the years, I had a lot of people who've influenced me. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be funny to ask the four of you, what is something you wish you had known when you were 18 years old? Oh, well, this is kind of like being 18 is a very precarious age. (laughs) I'll tell you what I wish I had known. I wish I had known a little bit more about bipolar disorder and how it shows up. Mm -hmm. Because at 18, I committed to a husband, a father of my children, who had struggles with mental health that I didn't really know what to make of it. Yeah. You know what? Would you have acted differently if you knew it? I mean, those are pointless. It is what it is, and every experience gives you a chance to learn something. Yeah, it's almost a trick question, right? Because I'm thinking of myself at 18. Even if I could tell something to my 18-year-old self, I'm not sure that my 18-year-old self would have the tools needed to listen. Yeah. So today, Amut, we decided to talk about getting older and retiring. So without further ado, let's dive in to this topic. One of the things that you told me when we were doing the pre-interview for this is that getting older is something that we do not talk a lot about. Yeah, I think our society, and maybe it's different for different cultural perspectives, because I can't speak about a perspective from an Indigenous or Black Canadian perspective. I don't know. I think there are differences in how we look at aging The Western dominant perspective is one that we need to somehow hide the signs of aging, Mm -hmm. that there is some shame in it. 
there's shame in having wrinkles. There's shame in having gray hair. You know, anti-wrinkle cream. Just think about that. Why? Because I need to hide the age I am. Or, or that, oh, you're not supposed to ask me how old I am. You know, that's not okay. We still have that. Why can we not own it and realize, yeah, you know, we want to deny death, but we're going there. Mm-hmm. I hope not very soon. You know, I <laughs> I'd like to have another 25 to 30 years. That would be nice. But, you know, it's a reality of life. It's part of life. Do you think it has to do with fear of illness? Illness, maybe more weakness and death. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we're afraid of death. We don't want to see this unique person that I am, that I experienced, this body, to fathom that that's just not going to be there, that you're just not going to be there. It's actually a pretty scary thing. So I understand that. And part of that, though, has to do with weakness, I think. You know, old and frail, those terms go together. Yeah, we lose some capacities as we age. Yeah. And, of course, it's kind of, it's hard when we lose the capacities that make us enjoy life. No, nobody wants to be sick and frail. And yet, denying that there's still value to life also is sort of an ableist kind of perspective. Yeah. Like, how do we see somebody who lives with a disability, who has lost some capacities? Can't they enjoy life still? So that's sort of my philosophical background. And then I look at myself, of course. I'm curious. I'm amazed at this process. Wow, you know, I just had this birthday. What does that mean, like being this age? How do I feel inside? I don't feel inside the same as I appear outside. I still feel the same person. That's something we hear quite regularly, like people aging and say, like, I don't recognize that old person in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Well, recognize or kind of being a bit perplexed as to, because from inside it feels differently. Mm -hmm. And then comes the challenge to accept and also to adjust to some things that maybe you don't do anymore. It's interesting, I was speaking to a friend, a colleague, who's just turned 50, and she's talking about that, and she has some health problems, so it's been hard for her. And, uh, you know, sort of saying, yeah, but do you also feel that this gives you something? Like where you can say, you don't care that much anymore, or you don't have to keep developing your career that hard anymore you are where you are and it's actually all right and you can settle down with it and enjoy it so there's some things you can let go of Mm -hmm. you can let go of like what other people think of you much more so (laughs) finally yeah it's like so this is who i am okay so you think this and think that does it really affect me less and less I think it is something that when you're in your 20s, 30s, even early 40s, or building your career, saving up, or, you know, all those goals in life, it does matter. It matters a lot more. It's almost like building your sense of self, like in your teenage years and early 20s or all 20s, what others are thinking and and yourself is really important because it says, this is who I am. And maybe what I'm hearing is that this goes away once you're more secure in who you are. That self-definition, I think, is a constant thing in our lives. We go through stages. I believe that we need to question that concept of a coherent self, because I think it's always a self in development and a self in relation. It isn't just one entity. It's a it's a whole big thing, right? We can talk about that at another time. <laughs> So there's not a moment, there's not a morning when you wake up and you're like, this is who I am and I'm now grounded and it's never going to change because I guess life is going to bring you changes if you're not ready for them. Think about even your body changes. I mean, that's one thing. Skin changes. There are some things that appear that you're thinking, eh, you know, I mean, the worst thing for women is the hairs that appear in different places that 
you didn't have before. And I think for men, it's the hair that grows out of your nose and ears. <laughs> Constant battle. So, I mean, those kind of things and your skin kind of changes and dry spots and aging spots and things like that, where you're reminded daily that things are changing. Yeah, it makes me think, and you were speaking a little bit earlier about like the medical model to disability where yeah. like the social model is like, how can we adapt our society to make people living with disability more comfortable or, you know, not have barriers. And then the medical model is more like, how can we take those disabilities away? How can we cure them? How can we remove them and make them invisible? And it seems like aging is one of those, I don't want to call aging a disability, but it's one of those things that despite all of the advancement of modern medicine, the body is still aging. And I think humans are not happy with that because the medical model of disability has been the one prevailing for years, despite the great activism of so many people. Yes, exactly. I think we're on the same page here. That's that's what I'm thinking about, you know, making it something that's wrong rather than saying that's part of the natural process. And within that, what are your capacities? How can you keep or build your capacities? You know, mental as well as physical. And yeah, you can see amazing feats where somebody who's 100 years old runs a marathon. It's amazing. And they must have trained throughout their lives. And frankly, I have no ambition to run a marathon. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to. That's another freedom. Like I think I've told you before that part of my perspective is to get away from this. It's a bad thing. And to say, okay. So in life, we always need to let go of something. And then we gain something else. We let go of childhood, of the ability to play. We have responsibility. You know, those are different things, different stages in life. So you do let go all the time at some point. And I really like focusing on what do I gain? What are my capacities? I'm more free to say no without feeling terribly guilty or bad about it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a real gift. So I'll give you an example. I mean, I've been skating. I roller skated since I've been a child, and I did figure skating on roller skates and all that stuff. Well, I don't roller skate anymore. And I did ice skating. I mean, in Canada, this is a good way to get through the winter until I, a number of years ago, fell and broke my hand. And since then, haven't been able to get back on skates and kind of decided, you know what? Do I really want to do this anymore? Part of me misses that a little bit. However, that risk of hurting myself feels stronger. So give myself permission to say, no, don't do that anymore. It's interesting that in the newspaper, the stories that they would print is this 100-year-old person running a marathon, but not this 100-year-old person is surrounded by their loved one and has learned to put boundaries and to be content with life and accept their aging process. That does not make front news in no, the newspaper. It doesn't, does it? And yet, you know, you do see people who are amazingly still kind of very vibrant and and that's fine. And we can't all do that. And again, we need to really watch that it's, oh, they've accomplished something that everybody should be able to accomplish. Because then when you can't, is that a failure? Mm, that's interesting. We're just different. You can't expect these things. I think I want to just move forward and learn to accept what comes and really like, keep a vision of what I really want, what's really important to me, what matters to me. Yeah. Tell us more about retiring. I think retiring is one of the biggest myths. So I'm in my mid-30s now, and like I don't even conceptualize what retirement is. I see my parents going through it right now and like struggling with it, but also being happy with it. It's this big thing that I don't think you can understand before you've actually been through it. I think capitalism, that's the big problem with it. It's, again, this all-or-nothing perspective. Like, even you get the, 
are you saving for your retirement? You're <laughs> RRSP, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I at 35 right now, if you have not started, everybody's going to tell you how late you are towards your retirement. I'm like, I'm still paying my student loan. <laughs> See, I didn't have that luxury. I was a single parent. I had to raise two kids. I didn't have money left over. Mm-hmm. But retiring itself, so we've had a mandatory retirement age for the longest time. Yeah. That is entirely economical, right? They're saying at 65, you're no longer able to work. Yeah. Ableism is back. Right? And it's entirely to force the older workforce so that you can make space for the younger ones, which is a dilemma we need to think about. We can't do it that way. Then they raised it to 67, and now it's you can't be forced to retire. There's also no accommodations. Like our field, you know, you have a private practice still and you're doing supervision. So you have this capacity. I think our work can be quite flexible in that way. But for a lot of other people and other lines of work, there's no accommodations for working. You either work full time or you don't work. And then the job that exists that are part time are normally like contracts, no benefits, low pay and things like that. So it's either you dedicate your whole life into working or you don't work at all. Well, yeah, and that's ableism. Either you're disabled or you're Mm able-bodied. I mean, you get that with people who are on disability, right, for mental health or physical health. Yes, that's terrible. If some people can only handle so much stress, so all they can do is work part-time, but they can work part-time, they're being penalized. Yeah, It's the same for... Actually, for people like me, once you retire, you earn too much money, they take your OAS away. And even for our college, I have to let you know, as a retired person, you can be a retired member, that's a lower fee, but then you can't work. But if you want to be a still an active member, there is a minimum number of hours you have to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember reading that. Fortunately, it's quite low, but yeah. It's low, but... You know, somebody who says they're retired, but they have like five clients they see once a month because they're committed to them. Yeah, that's not enough. I mean, who's going to sue them? But still, it's this all or nothing. I think that's what makes it such a big crisis. It is in some ways a crisis because it's a big decision in life. I mean, you work so hard to get to where you are. Like for me, being at the hospital, a senior member of the staff, you know, somebody that was always called on. I mean, even I had psychiatrists come to my office and say, can I consult with you? And which honors me, and I'd gladly do, and I'm thinking that doctors who can do that, they're great. Because we all sometimes need to consult. However, all of a sudden to say, okay, I've decided writing this letter saying I'm resigning from my position. Holy Moses, what did I just do? (laughs) It's really scary. And I think I didn't let myself know that soon enough. I sort of engaged in, oh, yeah, now I have time. It's like you're on this permanent vacation. You have time to do this, time to do that. And then reality kind of kicked in slowly. And I did have to fill my time in some ways. Yeah, what was the... um Like, what was the difference between what you thought it would be like? I mean, obviously, there was a pandemic. Well, not the first year. So it was December 2018. So I had a whole year before the pandemic hit us. Mm -hmm. So I traveled. But I kind of took up every opportunity I had to do something new that was exciting. I did private practice. That was fine. That, That was also exciting to kind of start that. And, yeah, the big thing was traveling and doing a workshop in Argentina. Hmm. And then that started me on learning Spanish. I learned Spanish. (laughs) It was very exciting to take up the opportunity, the freedom to do what I envisioned, what I wanted to do, especially that first year in 2019. That was pretty good. But still, it didn't quite sink in. I was just excited about all this. And then I was thinking, oh, you know, my former colleagues and people I can have lunch with and visit with and stuff like that. And that was maybe true to some extent in 2019. But then 2020 and everything shut down. 
I'm thinking even like old colleagues, even without the pandemic happening, but when you leave a system and you're no longer in that daily, day-to-day forced on that floor, on the seventh floor of Women's College Hospital, like with those people, the relationship changes. It it has to. It will never really be the same. It changed, yes. Yeah. You know, there are different kind of friendships and there are those daily contacts and, you know, the part of a team. And those are deeply felt connections mm-hmm. and they are connections within a certain context. And there are some people I'm closer to or I've been closer to and others not. So and that's all part of what that's like. But yeah, losing touch with what's happening in their lives. So I have a few that I more closely stayed in touch with and others who also retired. Yeah. And they're not retired because they were our age, but that left and did their own thing. And so it, it takes more of an effort. It is different. You're out of that context. What about letting go of that program that you built and nourished for 20 years? How is that? That must be very difficult. It was actually because there were major changes coming as I was retiring. We were already we could see the writing on the wall of major changing to how we were going to deliver the program that were pushed by financial efforts, by financial necessities. They were imposed on us. Right. And so we had to adjust. And at that point, that's actually one of the reasons why I decided then that's it. I don't want to live with these changes anymore. They make me, they infuriate me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that well, yeah. Right. So I thought, okay, I better leave before I have to leave on a bad note because I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But that has to do with the healthcare funding. I'm not, it's not our team. It was management for sure and management making decisions under financial pressures from the whole healthcare system. Yeah. I don't mind leaving the system. I am very happy. I never wanted to do that kind of stuff. The program itself, yes. And Obviously, our colleagues were able to maintain, like I said earlier, maintain the core value of it. And that's really reassuring to know. Absolutely. But it was an adjustment. I think there is a grieving process. And sometimes when we're grieving something, I don't think we're immediately aware of that. That's where we're at. It just is this vague feeling of where am I going? What am I doing? Part of what I discovered is also this exciting new things, maybe throwing myself a little bit too much into those in order to stave off that kind of feeling of loss. Yeah, you mentioned that quite a few times, how like getting older is about letting go of things and grieving. Can you tell us more? I think they're like the obvious things, like letting go of that work, but I think there's also a lot of like much more like subtle things. Like what about that decision that I made to like move to Canada, for example, or smaller decisions that happen and where would I be had that not happened? Yeah, yeah. I think you do look back in that way. You know, part of getting older is actually letting go of your parents. Mm-hmm. I lost my father very early, so that was unexpected. He was only 58 and died of a heart attack. But my mother died of dementia. So I had a long process of grieving and having to let her go and not having that relationship with her because she was mentally not there. That was hard at a distance. So, you know, that is a longer term process. And yet there are always these little bits that you give up. Like I said, skating. Yeah. Downhill skiing. I mean, you can't afford it anyways right now. (laughs) Would I go if I had a chance? Probably, you know. I think I can still do it. And yet it's not likely to happen right now. So it's a lot of small things that you let go of that you don't realize. Not sitting in an office with a client anymore. Mm -hmm. I have to let go of that. Like on one hand, I like working online. On the other hand, there's like a loss of an experience that in itself was also something special. So those things, you constantly let go of this, let go of that. I'm not going to do that anymore. So those are decisions. These are the, all these little, little losses. And each one, I think, is important to consciously deal with that. Oh, what's that feel like? Mm-hmm. What does that feel like, that decision inside of myself that, oh, it's something I really enjoyed. I can still remember the feeling of it. I'm probably not going to do that. 
It's like one small concession at the time, but I'm assuming sometimes looking back, it probably like gives like vertigo of how much you've had to let go. Mm, not so much. Not so much. Okay. So interesting. One of my friends who, who teaches mindfulness training once said to me, because I said to her, I don't meditate every day. I don't have the motivation to do that. She says, I'm with you're the most mindful person I know. And I, <laughs> what? and I get it. I have a really strong philosophy of being present in the present moment. So I don't usually let myself get dragged down by all that's no longer or by losses or regrets and kind of try to refocus myself to, okay, where am I right now? So there is that, and even this morning, I'm listening to the news, and I notice myself, it's like, oh, this is so stressful. And what I want to do is enough, enough news. I'm getting away from it. I'm going to focus on today. Yeah. What's my today? What do I do today? Even like this morning, I told you I went back swimming, which I love, and I'm not going to give up because that's something I can do. And it was so good to go back into the pool. And what I do is I swim lengths and I count. I count the lengths. I'm on lengths one, then I'm on two. It is a mindful exercise for me. My mind goes all over the place and I can just think about those thoughts flow away with the water. And so I practice that and it really helps being present where I am right now, who I am right now. It's okay, I can accept where I'm at right now. So most of the time, I don't let myself get dragged down into those rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Which is a good segue. We've talked about what have you lost, you know, aging. But on the other hand, you've probably gained a lot of things. And I think these things we don't talk enough about. What is gained by aging and getting older. So it can't all be negative. Tell us about that. No, and I think I was already starting to talk about that. Mm -hmm. You know, the freedom to say, do I feel like doing that? No, actually, no. You know how delicious it is to be able to sit on the couch in the morning with my coffee and read? I just, okay, this is the book I feel like reading right now. I'm just going to read. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes there's the England, there are things you should be doing. You shouldn't be just sitting here reading. And then I talk to myself and say, no, you're allowed to. That permission, the permission to be tired. I used to never take naps. I cannot nap. If I did have naps, I'd have a hard time waking up again. Like I struggled with low blood pressure most of my life, and, and it was really hard to get myself back up again. So I would never do that. But now that I can sit in an afternoon, I have to look at I have clients or appointments, but I usually sit in the afternoon, have a cup of herbal tea, and read or even watch some TV, then I tend to fall asleep on it. And I just have these quick 10, 15-minute naps. And again, it's the permission to do this. Mm -hmm. My time is my time. And that is such a freedom. Yeah, I still work because I want to. It's additional money. But that freedom to say, I'll do this or I won't do that. The other thing that it's given me is a real appreciation for the kind of relationships I've forged in life. I have some very deep, long-term friendships, even beyond friendships, like chosen family. Mm -hmm. And I really value that even more so now. That's so important. I always thought my mother was kidding us. When we asked her what you want for your birthday, she was going, oh, I just want everybody around me. Oh, come on, give us something <laughs> to buy you. And you know what? I get it now. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I can buy myself stuff. I don't want stuff. But your presence, your attention, time together, so valuable. So that's that's a shift that I find really quite wonderful, like to be able to really, really appreciate that, those relationships. It's interesting because we talked about like ableism and capitalism and those two things that you've gained, like not only being tired, but like allowing yourself to rest. And those relationships are two things that 
I think it's changing. I think there's like a wave of people my age that are like pushing against the current, but it's not well viewed. I think <laughs> downtown Toronto, you have to be tired, but you're certainly not allowed to like do something about it. And one thing I say a lot, and I'm proud of it, and it sounds lazy, but it's not. I keep saying to everyone, my goal in life is to work as little as possible. I'm a hard worker. You know me. I'm always have like too many projects to handle. I'm doing this podcast for free, but I want to work as little as possible. Obviously, it comes from a very privileged place where I have the chance to be that person and to do that, but it's not well viewed often, especially at my age. There's a whole category of people who's like, no, this is the moment where you have to like work as hard as you can so that you can buy your place and then do your retirement. And I'm like, no, I don't want to work all my life for that retirement. I want to live my life right now. And it's not well viewed. Yeah. Well, listen, lessons in life. My father was 58, so he wasn't retired and he died. Mm, yeah. That's so young. All that working for his retirement wouldn't have done anything except that my mother got some of his pension, but yeah. Yeah. You don't know. You don't know. Live now. Yes, you do need to do some wise planning, but don't get overly invested in that. Like, you just don't know what's around the corner. And in a positive way, I'm thinking, well, we don't know. So just be open to it. Something's going to come. And I do believe good things can happen. And I think that the relationships we forge are so valuable, so valuable in life. Absolutely. One of the last points that I wanted to approach, it's that you do have this dual way of thinking about aging because you are aging yourself. But I'm assuming that all of your clientele and a lot of the people that you work with are also aging. And I was just curious, as a therapist, how do you see your clients like struggling or thriving with the aging and retirement process? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you know that trauma therapy is also a lot about kind of looking back in the past and and coming to terms with what it's both given you and what it's taken away from you. That topic is there. Yeah. There's a lot of like this time that I've lost, like dealing with that trauma. And now like I, why did it take me so long to uh, go seek therapy? And I've lost all those years to that trauma. Yes. Especially people who are sort of 50 plus 60 mm -hmm saying, oh, I'm still struggling with this. Why is it still? And there's that shame almost of not having overcome it. Yeah. Yeah, we deal with that. My clients are quite varied in age. I mean, I have, especially when it comes to couples therapy, some younger couples, some younger people, anywhere from the 30s into 70s. Then it's not just even age, but people with uh, health problems with pretty severe health problems. So I have several who have like autoimmune disorders that they need to manage. They need to manage the stress level. So that parallels a lot of that, whether it's aging or whether it's just that your body has a reaction, you know, you have arthritis or chronic pain. I think that perspective that I've taken can help a bit in terms of accepting what you can't change and and saying, okay, how can you minimize the pain? Or how can, in spite of the pain, how can you give into that? And then how can you find the moments when it's better? And what can you do with that? You know, even I've got one client who's both struggling with aging and minimal capacity, chronic fatigue, and now cancer diagnosis. And just accompanying her through that, talking, listening, being there. Yeah. Again, that relational approach is so important. I'm here. I'm not going to fix it for you. I can't make that go away. How can we make your life a little bit more bearable, a little bit more fun? Can you find moments of joy? And that's big in demystifying what we do as therapists. Like we keep having to fight against the idea like we're here to fix people and we're not. Sometimes it's just about the relationships. As you know, like one of the other thing you taught me is Vincent, sometimes you're the only stable person in someone's life, and that is worth a lot. And my younger therapeutic self, my younger therapist self, really wanted to fix people and make their life better in a way that I understood life to be better. But again, that was so ableist. That was so 
white centered. That was my ideology of what is better. And that's not what I'm here to bring to clients and working with people with cancer, with chronic fatigue, with aging. It's about that mindfulness and, and acceptance and what can I do to support you and how those relationships help. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers the whole question about how I work with people in that, but it is a lot of that recognizing that process and that dialectic between letting go and accepting and looking at opportunities. Because it's not like uh, just to go into the accept what is and just come to terms with it is a very defeatist kind of attitude. And, you know, often people lose perspective of what's possible for them. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of clients, actually, who are in an older category, who are in university. Yeah, both of them are writing their PhD dissertation and struggling with that. And should I really do that? And what's the point of saying that you need to go with, if that's what you're driven to do, if that's like your passion is there, your energy is there, go for it. And there is a real advantage because they're not like where, you know, you're in your late 20s or early 30s and you want to get that dissertation written because you want to get an academic position. Maybe not that. Yeah. Yeah, there's this idea that letting go is accepting defeat, but it's not. Like, this is not how I think of it. You know, I work a lot with body image and self-esteem and a lot of time when i talk about acceptance people are like so you want me to just sit on my couch and eat chips all day and i was like no (laughs) like self-acceptance and self-love is not just about like being defeated and not trying to be the best version of yourself and you know what you're talking about like that body image like your behavior it is worthwhile to look at how am i acting and what propels me to act that way Mm Am I trying to solve something with the wrong means? Yeah. Sitting on the couch and eating chips, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead and enjoy the chips. But if you're eating the chips to stuff down some feelings, maybe you need to start facing those feelings, you know, because you'll do something that feels better for you in the end. Like, that's the thing, right? And not seeing, like, the whole life only in, like, black and white, right? It's either you try to control everything or you're on the exact opposite spectrum of this where you've self-accepted and then you don't do anything for yourself. And I'm like, no, there's a whole world that exists between those two lines. Well, one thing I've learned from my involvement with Marxism is dialectics, that whole concept of dialectics that you really need to think of both and that there is a purpose for our actions and it's worthwhile discovering what's behind it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a lot about aging and retirement. Is there anything that we've missed that you want to add about this topic? Well, I might probably answer that question an hour after we finish talking, but, you know, there's always so much more to say. Mm-hmm. There's always so much more to say, but I think we've kind of covered most of it. I just, I like John Lennon. Do you know that John Lennon quote, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans? I think I've heard that quote, yeah, but I don't think I've ever given much thought. <laughs> Yeah. Tell us more about that quote. We can think a lot about what we should be doing, where we should be, how life should be, how the world should be, how we need to prepare for this, that, and everything. And then life happens. And it isn't exactly as you envisioned it. And that's okay. Yeah. That really helps, that attitude. That's okay. The one thing I wanted to add is, You know about the imposter syndrome. I know it very well, yes. (laughs) That's something we all struggle with to some extent. Even I do at this point, oh, I to go and teach this course or do that. But it's easier. It becomes easier. Again, this kind of, oh, well, what do I care? And I mean, I look at other people and I'm a little bit more (laughs) judgmental, I guess, in that way saying, you know, people write books and they invent this new therapy method and it's all brand new and they call it this and they call it that. And then they syndicate it, right? And then it's like you have to go and jump through hoops and pay the price to get their training so that you're a specialist in that. 
And most of that I find is a lot of capitalist gobbledygook. Yeah. And so I feel more permission to just own what I know and apply it as I know it. And, you know, if it's helpful, it's helpful. And if it's not helpful, you'll let me know. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's interesting how like money comes into the realm of the work that we're doing, because obviously we're doing it because we care and because we have that passion, but also we need to pay rent. And value our work. Yeah, Also, especially if we're coming from, like, well, as women, I have to say, like, our work's always undervalued, has been. We still don't get paid the same as men in general. I think for anybody who is in a, belongs to a grouping that traditionally has been discriminated against will feel that, you know. So what are we saying when we're saying, no, we don't need to get paid for what? We've struggled to learn what we struggle every day that we do our work to do it better because it's very personal. Yeah. We deserve to get paid for that. Yeah. yeah I think so too. Yeah. Well, I'm with, thank you so much for recording with me and coming on my podcast. You've been one of the person that I told first when I was starting this like over a year ago, and I'm glad we finally made a moment to record your episode. Yeah. Okay. Well, all the best with this. This is really exciting to do. I've been promoting your podcast everywhere and I'll continue to do so. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for everything that you brought to me. And I'm hoping that I was able to share a little bit of your wisdom to (laughs) all of my listeners, because I'm very lucky that I had you as a mentor and I will continue to have you as a mentor, obviously. Yeah. And that's a mutual feeling. (laughs) thank you Uh, for everyone who's listening thank you to you too do not hesitate to give us a rating or a comment and to subscribe to this podcast if you want to stay in contact with me you follow the mental health much instagram account until the next episode please keep talking about mental health to everyone as much as you can and keep safe